I'll return for the final time, God willing, for the present to the book of Nehemiah and chapter 13. And the title I've chosen tonight is Christian Distinctives Upheld, the things that mark us apart, the things that distinguish us from those who have no thought for God and those who've gone into the world. Perhaps they've slidden backwards. And so this is the main theme, I believe, of this chapter. Now, as I said, the first three verses, I think, come in a slightly different order. The clue is there in verse 4. It says, and before this, before the first three verses. Nehemiah has gone back to Jerusalem in 444 BC. He's finished his work. It would seem maybe there's time for retirement and putting his feet up. But then he hears terrible news. Seems to me that that's what's happened because he asks for permission to go back to Jerusalem once more. It seems he's heard of the state and the condition in just 12, 10, 10, 11, 12 years after he's left, after the walls have been rebuilt, the worship has resumed and the repopulating of the city has largely progressed. And so he hears grievous news. Verse 8, it grieved me sore. Don't think the words quite get there. The Hebrew means something like exceeding grief. Just imagine you've given the best years of your life. You've overcome enemies. You've overcome dangers, challenges. And then you hear that all that you've done has nearly been pulled to pieces. But more than that, the honour of the Lord, the Lord's glory is in danger the jeopardy is that the whole project was a waste of time. It grieved me sore. Poor Nehemiah. We feel for him. He makes haste. He goes back. Verse 6. But in all this time was not I at Jerusalem. It dates it to the king Artaxerxes, who's still in power. The archaeology confirms all of this. And on, after certain days, verse 6, I obtained leave of the king. Well, just two headings tonight. We'll go through the chapter and look at the mess. First of all, pick out the negative, the things that he discovered, that he'd heard about with his ears, but he saw with his eyes. And then we'll look at the actions that he took. And then just in conclusion, the legacy of his total faithfulness. There's not many men in the word of God that we hold up very high. You think of those that were really known as much for their failings. King David, Simon Peter, just a name but two, but Joshua and Nehemiah. Oh, we hold them very high. Nehemiah does seem to be one of those choice servants. He gets, as far as we can see, everything right. He was a fallen man, of, I'm sure, but the work that he accomplishes seems to be virtually unblemished to our reading 
and our taking. So he goes back. Let's look at the mess that he discovered. These 12 years, they've gone quickly, faithfully and loyally. He's gone back to the palace. Remember, he didn't try and escape. He was such a loyal man. He stayed at his post. He was only given leave for a period of time. The work was done in 50 plus days. And so he goes back. He honours his pledge. We should always do that as believers. Stay at our post. And so he goes back. What does he discover? Well, if we're to summarise before we look at the detail. Unfaithfulness backsliding and compromise. What a tragedy in the Christian life. This is the typical church in the Old Testament. That's the way we read the children of Israel. Yes, they were a mixed multitude, but they typify the church. And so the lessons for us, they speak to us individually because what was happening here as the city of Jerusalem was just made up of individuals who were doing the same. And so it speaks to us. So what would Nehemiah do? Would he wallow in self-pity? Feel sorry for himself? Announce 40 days of mourning? No. He gets straight down to it. And in some of the ways it's pretty confrontational. As we shall see. So he gets stuck in. Well, five aspects of what he discovers. The first, let's look at verse four. Failed leadership. Here's the man who's in charge of spiritual things in Jerusalem. Eliashib, the priest. Just go back to chapter three. And we see this man mentioned there, the high priest. Verse one, chapter three, then Eliashib. The high priest rose up with his brethren, his family, the priests, and they that builded the sheep gate, and they sanctified it. They set up the doors, and they sanctified those too. He started so well. He was one of those that worked hard. He did what Nehemiah said. But his leadership has gone to pieces. And you know, very often, when a church fails, it starts at the top. If there is a top, it starts with those who have the vested responsibility to lead the deacons, the elders, the pastor who are not watching. And perhaps they've got some other agenda. Maybe they slide and fall. And so everything comes down with them. And that's the beginning. And it's no coincidence. It starts here. Eliashib who had oversight of the chamber of the house of God. How do you think it started for him? Maybe he started in modern language to watch things that he shouldn't have watched, to read things he shouldn't have read. Just a little, and a little, and a little. Nobody's seeing. Nobody's watching. Maybe the boundaries that had been put round his life that have fallen to us in pleasant places, as the psalm says, they got lifted. Those boundaries. He adopted a bit more of a, well, anything goes sort of mentality. And maybe he looked at those that kept the boundaries, some of his colleagues, and he looked down at them and said, you don't need to do that. 
That's not necessary. Nehemiah's not here anymore. And then maybe he started to justify what he was doing. The reasons, the benefits. Oh, maybe, maybe trade and commerce and the economy of Jerusalem would grow and we wouldn't have the straitjacket that we once had. Now, don't get me wrong, this isn't Christian legalism. This isn't box ticking. This is Christian common sense that we're going to look at tonight. We all need boundaries. Why did the Lord give us ten of them? Because we need safe boundaries to live in. They are a mercy. They're a grace. What does the word of God say? Oh, how I love thy law. Do you delight in the law of God? It's for your safety. It's for your comfort, for your blessing, for your happiness and mine. And so he adopts what we might call a policy of diplomacy. I said this in the adult Bible class, I think it was. My memory serves me right. Are we ambassadors or diplomats? The word of God says we're ambassadors. We declare the terms. We don't negotiate. And what Eliashib does here is he starts to negotiate. He starts to become diplomatic. Look at this, verse 4. He was allied to Tobiah. Tobiah. Tobiah was an enemy. He hated Nehemiah. He mocked. He scorned. He did Sambalat's running for him. And now the priest of the temple, the high priest, is allied to Tobiah. I won't give you any analogies in modern day terms, but you can see the complete conflict. They were opposites. They were enemies. And here, Eliashib, what had happened is Samballat. You can look at this towards the end of the chapter. Verse 28, one of the sons of Joiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Samballat. He's got married. One of his relatives has married one of their enemies. It's a dangerous thing, isn't it? Parents sometimes do this. Their children maybe go off in a different direction. They wouldn't have wanted them to. And they justify it. They say, well, it's not so bad. Could be worse. He seems to be a different man now, Tobiah. Not what he once was. No, he's changed. Oh, has he? He is an ally to Tobiah. Failed leadership. Secondly, we see this compromise. Now, what does he do with Tobiah? Verse 5. He had prepared for him a great chamber. I read one translation and it says a penthouse had been given to Tobiah. He's got all the luxuries. He's got everything that he wanted, a lavish penthouse. We might say that's madness. Bringing an, an enemy of God into the house of God and saying, make yourself at home. Put your slippers on. Come here. Be one of us. And what they're done, you can almost sense the frankincense odour was still in the room where Tobiah was. The vessels, the tithes of corn, those were there. They were like a storehouse for the supplies of the Levites. And they'd cleared them out. 
and all his household stuff. It brought his suitcases. It brought his plants, whatever it was, to decorate the room. It made himself at home. Oh, the first fruits of the harvest, their tithes should have been there no longer. The sweet smell was still lingering. And the arch enemy of God has taken up residence. It's just a contradiction. You, you can't imagine bringing somebody from an, an opposite religion. If there is, every religion is opposite to grace and mercy. But here we have Tobiah, an Ammonite. Those that hated Nehemiah and had a long-standing hatred of the Lord God of Israel. Isn't it amazing what professing believers will do? Let's bring it up to date. How we will compromise, accommodate, anything goes to keep the peace. Or we can make alliances, evangelicals, Catholics together. We can have the world's music, we can have the word of God side by side. In the house of God. I think this is shocking, it's one of the most shocking things we read of. He's only gone 12 years and look what's broken out. And so, do you think Eliashib knew this was wrong? He absolutely did. He was the high priest. He knew what Nehemiah would have wanted, but it started with a little compromise and it got bigger and bigger. Well, let's look at the third thing. It overlaps from the second. The Levite ministry has been compromised. They've now had to go back to the fields because there's no supplies for them. The penthouse has been prepared for Tobiah and all his household stuff has been moved in and now there's nothing for the Levites to eat. You can't really blame them. They've gone back to provide for themselves in a sense, but we don't read of any of them challenging Eliashib saying, this is wrong. No, we're staying here. No, they all cave in. That's what happens. It's like a domino effect. That can happen in churches too. We all give in when we see there's something awful happening and nobody puts up a hand and says, hang on, that's not right. And so there was a bystander. If you turn to Malachi... Right at the end of the New Testament, he's writing about this period of time. We know that because he describes it very clearly. Malachi, just before Matthew chapter 2. And this is what he says. He pleads with them. Verse 1, And now, O ye priests, this commandment's for you. If you will not hear, if you will not lay it to heart to give glory unto my name, says the Lord of hosts, I will even send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. I have cursed them already because you do not lay it to heart. And so on, verse 5, my covenant was with him of life and peace, and I gave them to him for the fear wherewith he feared me, and he was afraid before my name. The law of truth was in my, his mouth, and iniquity was not found in his lips. He walked with me in peace and equity, and did turn many away from iniquity. For the priest's lips 
should keep knowledge. And they should seek the law at his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But ye are departed out of the way. Ye have caused many to stumble at the law. Ye have corrupted the covenant of Levi, the Levites, saith the Lord. Malachi saw. He warned them. They took no notice. Let's go down to verse 15. I'm just pulling out the themes. Here's the fourth one. This is a major one. In those days saw I in Judah, verse 15, and they were doing a little bit of treading of the grapes on the Sabbath. Oh, the harvest has come in. The, the grapes will waste if we wait till the following day. And then they bring in some corn from the fields. Maybe they heard a, a forecast of rain if they had a weather forecast. And then they fill up the donkeys and bring in. And before you know, it's like market day. On the Sabbath in Jerusalem. And they were selling. And worse than that, the people from Tyre were bringing their dried fish. I assume they were dry. They had no fridges. Verse 16. They brought their fish and all manner of ware and they sold it. Well, what was it to start with? They just pushed a few grapes through a sieve. But then it was more and more and more. Now, this is a big theme today. Many people don't believe that we need to keep the Lord's Day. They throw out one of the Ten Commandments. I've never understood that. The Lord wrote them with the finger of his hand. They were broken and he wrote them again. Did he write them in clay? No. Tablets of stone. It's saying something. They're for time immemorial. They're permanent. The Lord says, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. Why would he suddenly get rid of one of the Ten Commandments? Yes, I know the Levitical laws have gone, the ceremonial laws. But what was the purpose of the Lord's Day? Well, it was to give rest for the soul. It was to be a witness to the people round about. It was to enable them to focus on what they should have been, the worship of God and making him the priority in their life. What happens when these things go? Well, let me give you an analogy from across the pond. It was in America. In the 1940s and 50s, after the Second World War, that college sport started to take off. In America, you get more people watching a college game of American football than you do the professional teams. And what happens now on a Sunday, spring forward 80 years, is many people don't go to the Lord's house on a Sunday evening. In fact, the majority of evangelical churches only have one service on a Lord's Day. What they do is they sit down and game of American football, if you know the rules and how many breaks they have for the burgers in the middle, lasts four hours. And what they do is they invite the whole church around. I'm, I'm slightly exaggerating, but that's the point. And that's it. That's the Lord's Day. 
What does that teach the children? It teaches them that actually sport is more important than the Lord God. It teaches them that you can put the word of God on the shelf and you can instead worship the creature instead of the creator. Well, isn't that what this is about here? The children of Judah were buying goods. It started small, it gets bigger and bigger. Soon they're organising articulated lorries to come in on the Lord's Day. That's the equivalent of the asses. All the wares that they need, just open doors through the twelve gates of Jerusalem. In you come, no problem at all. The Lord's Day is a matter of where is your heart? It's about priorities. What matters most in your life? Is it you? Is it your hobby, your sport? This isn't legalism. This is the Lord's provision for our soul to protect us. Well, we'll come back to that in a minute. The fifth thing that dear Nehemiah sees down in verse 23. In those days also saw I Jews who had married people from Philistia, Moab, Ashdod, Amnon. Well, these things are in the news at the moment. You know what I mean. That strip of land was occupied at that time by those who were haters of God, those who worshipped idols, those who sacrificed children, babies, who put no value on life. And so, Nehemiah, having once during the period of revival, he had said this should not be. What does he see? Even their children, in 12 years, the children that have been born from these mixed marriages, it rather implies it was happening five minutes after he left. Their children couldn't even speak Hebrew. 12 years later. What a tragedy. Mixed marriages. Isn't it interesting? Out of the line of Lot and his two daughters and the incestuous relationship, the birth of these nations is going to promulgate sin on a terrible scale that still goes on today. The Lord had called these people to be distinct. They must be a pure people. Through this people would come the saviour of the world, Jesus Christ. There cannot be mixed marriages with the people of God. This is a disaster. And Nehemiah sees it all. Now let's just pause the five things that we've noticed. Is this ancient history? Or is this the same that we see today? Leadership undermined. Ministry undermined. The service of God working in a church for the Lord. The Lord's Day and pure, godly marriages. 
Isn't that five things that we see today? I'd find it hard to pick five more prominent things that attack and undermine the church than those five things that Nehemiah is grieved sore about. Well, that's the mess. Now let's go back at the beginning of the chapter and let's see what Nehemiah does very simply. Well, the first thing, it may not be Nehemiah's initiative, but it is what happens. Remember, verses 1 to 3 occur after verse 4. The first thing, this is always a first action for the backslider, for a nation and for us individually. They read the word of God. What did they read? They read Deuteronomy 23 verses 3 to 6. We know that. Just turn to it. It's useful for us to see how the word of God is so interlinked and it quotes itself. It's so obviously written by the hand of God and the Holy Spirit. Deuteronomy 23, 3 to 6. An Ammonite or Moabite shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord unless they covenant with the people of God, unless they leave their idol worship. Even to their tenth generation, a figure of speech, shall they not enter into the congregation of the Lord forever, because they met you not with bread and with water in the way. They wouldn't supply the needs of the Israelites in the wilderness. When ye came forth out of Egypt, and because they hired against the Balaam, an idol worshipper, Verse 5, Nevertheless, the Lord thy God would not hearken unto Balaam, but the Lord thy God turned the curse into a blessing, and so on. So the first thing is the word of God is read, and it tells them no mixed multitude. Don't bring people into the church that have never bowed their knee to the Lord. Don't bring people into church membership that have never professed faith and repented of their sins. That's the first thing. You know, in the church, and I'm speaking of the wider congregation, we have three kinds of people. We have those who've come into a covenant relationship through Christ. They've been born again. They have a changed life. Their number one allegiance and priority is to Christ, his ways, his laws. They join the church. They're covenanted, a covenanted people. They've pledged, promised and said, I'm one of you. I'm on the Lord's side. But then there's those who've not yet come to love the Lord Jesus Christ. They might be near to the kingdom, but they've not yet bowed their knee. They're outside. There's only two sorts. But I said to you, there was a third. Well, in a sense, there is. There are those who are the Lord's people. They love the Lord, but they don't seem to love his church. I've never understood that. They don't love what Christ gave his life for. They don't love what he was willing to sacrifice everything for. Why do I say that? Because 
They're not pledged to a church. They don't afford themselves the privilege of all the means of grace and the responsibilities of caring for others. And that's what can happen in a mixed multitude. We are to safeguard against these things. The church membership must be pure as far as we can tell. Well, let's see what he does here to Tobiah. The word of God has been read and they split out the Ammonites, verse 3. And then what happens? Tobiah gets turfed out. You're not staying here any longer, says Nehemiah. Get out. Take your stuff with you. Verse 7, I came to Jerusalem and I understood the evil of Eliashib in preparing a chamber. Therefore I cast out, I threw it out, all his household stuff. That's a bit brave, Nehemiah. Well, no, it's not. He didn't ask for permission. He didn't do a focus group. He didn't have a council meeting. He knew what the word of God said and did it. He had the authority of a secular king, Artaxerxes. He saw it and said, this is wrong and I'm going to sort it out. You can see him making a wave as he comes into Jerusalem. They're throwing out the pots and the pans and the beds and everything. And then verse 9. That's not enough. I need to cleanse the whole of the temple and put the temple back in order. Bring the vessels of the house of God. Start collecting the tithes, the meat, the frankincense, the sweet smell that should have been there. Well, Nehemiah, what a brave, courageous man you are. Turfing out Tobiah. Let's look at verse 13. Here's his third action. The word of God is read. Tobiah's turfed out. Verse 13, I made treasurers. We need to collect the money again. We need the Levites to be doing what they were told to be doing. And look, what does he do? I love this term. Verse 13, for they, those above, were counted faithful. We have a friend who's got a publishing house. He publishes books mostly through ebooks and Amazon, and he called his publishing house Counted Faithful. Isn't that a lovely term? An officer with responsibility. And what's the term used? For they were counted faithful, and their office was to distribute unto their brethren. They were deacons, and they were faithful at their job, and so they were appointed. And the compromised leaders were booted out. And Nehemiah starts with proper leadership again of those who were counted faithful. Well, let's look at a fourth thing very briefly before we come to conclusion. Notice that four times in this chapter, you can see it in verse 14, 22, 29, and then down in 31, he uses there or thereabouts the same phrase. Remember me, O oh my God. It's an arrow prayer. He feels overwhelmed. He's grief struck. He's taking bold, courageous action. And it's not hit and hope. 
it's commit yourself to the Lord. Remember me, O my God, concerning this also. Each action he takes, Lord, remember me. May this be according to the greatness of thy mercy, he says down there in verse 29. Well, Nehemiah, what a courageous man. There's one more thing that he's got to do. He's got to make the people distinct and he's got to make the Lord's day distinct. And that's what he sets about doing here. Verse 25 We deal first with the issue of marriage. What does he do? He comes and he sees them and he contended with them. Verse 25, he says, I'm going to pull your hair out. Well, that's a strange thing to do unless you know that what you're doing is utterly right, which Nehemiah did. And he makes them make a promise. And he says, don't ever take their daughters, their sons again. You mustn't. Marry in a mixed way. You must marry in the Lord, from amongst the Lord's people. That's the first thing. He deals with that. And then what about the Lord's day? He warns them, by the way, that even Solomon, a wise man, succumbed to pagan women and it caused him to sin. So learn from Solomon, he says. But let's go back and look at the Lord's day and we finish with this. He says to them, you've got to put some safeguards in place. This is what they will be. We're going to shut the gates the evening before the Sabbath. They won't open until the day after. We're going to put guards next to the gates so nobody's tempted to slip out to do any shopping. And if anybody breaks those rules, they will have the curse of God upon them. That's the Lord's day in Old Testament language. And then he says, well, if you don't believe me, verse 18, didn't your fathers make the same mistake? And all this evil was brought upon this city, yet you're doing it again. You don't learn, says Nehemiah. And so he puts all these protections in place and he safeguards the people so that they will be all for God. There'll be a holy people given to godly marriages and to keeping the Lord's day, not in a legal way, but saying what's most important to me. If you forgive me one word about my testimony as a 16 year old, I might have mentioned this before. I was playing sport at a senior level and I suddenly felt so guilty about playing cricket on a Sunday without my parents knowing, week after week. And I couldn't do it the following Sunday. I read some verses in Isaiah 58, which speak of the pleasure that you take on the Lord's day. And I realised my pleasure was not the Lord. And from that time onwards, I couldn't participate in that way. Well, isn't that what's happening here? Nehemiah is saying, where's your heart? What comes first in your life? Is it you? Is it your family? Is it the relatives that your children have wrongly married? Or is it the Lord your God? Are you for him?
Are you devoted to his cause? Well, a few words in conclusion. Nehemiah, utterly, utterly faithful. Right to the end. What grief it brought him. But he wasted no time putting things right. The revival had come. And the revival disappeared so quickly. But he delighted in the law of God. He came, unlike Julius Caesar, he didn't conquer. He came, he contended, and he cleansed the city. He contended for truth, and he cleansed the people of their sinful ways. And in so doing, he upheld godly Christian distinctives, the same distinctives that are parallel with the way that we should live today. Here's five things that we should delight in. God's word, number one, it's our only authority. Number two, delighting in God's law, even the Lord's day. I say even, especially, call the Sabbath your delight. Thirdly, love and pursue and promote Godly marriages. Fourthly, no compromise with the world or the enemies of God. And fifthly, we request and plead and pray for the Lord's help in everything we do. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. Cannot our God only do good? Would we not come to him? And pray for his goodness to be showered upon us. But he'll only do that if we're obedient and consecrated to him and to him alone. May the Lord guide us in our complicated lives to honour him. As we